You are listening to Masters Decoded podcast series. I'm your host and the chief decoder, Anis Merchant. Through this podcast, I bring in guests who are successful in a different walk of life to decode and map out their careers and journeys with the hope that we gain all our learnings. The world around us is changing exponentially and how the impact of artificial intelligence, technology, and other socioeconomic factors have either influenced or enhanced my guest careers. My next guest is a fantastic individual who had a real humble beginning from foster home to an angel investor and a CEO. Greg Shepard is a serial entrepreneur, author, speaker, and an angel venture capital investor with a legacy of building and running sustainable growth businesses. Driven by a transformational leadership style and a framework, Greg has spearheaded multiple company exits throughout his career. His former company, Affiliate Traction, was acquired by eBay Enterprise Marketing Solutions in January of 2016 as part of a cross-brand deal totaling $985 million. Without further much ado... Hey, Greg. Uh, welcome to Masters Decoded podcast series, and thanks for taking time out in these interesting times. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I have done a little bit of research about what who Greg is, uh, and I know that you run a company, you've written books, and you are a published Forbes author as well. Uh, can you give, for the benefit of the audience, a little bit perspective of what you're doing currently? There's a lot of history what you've done, uh, but currently what you're focused on? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I grew up in a family without very much. Uh, for about two years, we lived in tents while we tried to build our house. And so I had a lot of foster siblings, adopted siblings. And so we grew up, uh, you know, pretty frugal. And so, you know, in the climb to get to where I am, when I got to a certain point, I started to want to give back. And I tried to go into politics and I couldn't really get the satisfaction that I needed in politics. So I decided to, I was at the beach, actually, the, the real story is I was at the beach and I was meditating. And in a, in a moment, I got the flash, this idea that I would be able to uh, help businesses with what I had already learned uh, in the process of building companies. So I built 12 companies and, you know, invested in a bunch and, you know, I've used this system boss, which stands for the business operating support system the whole time. And I thought to myself, well, what if I had applied this to politics and it worked? And I was like, well, maybe what I need to do to give back is to help more entrepreneurs succeed. The failure rate is around, you know, 80, 90%. And it's just unacceptable. There's a lot of really good ideas and good people out there that have businesses that should make it. And so what I decided to do is write a book about it, start writing articles about it and start sharing it as think of it like open source software, start sharing it with everybody and give it to them um, so that they can be more successful. And so I started uh, doing that and that's something I'm currently doing. And then I also started learning that as I started to help these entrepreneurs, um, the companies that I invested in and other companies that you know, they needed the funding. So I had people coming to me saying, hey, listen, I want to back companies that you're involved in because I've got a really good track record. 
And so I put together Boss Capital uh, Partners. And Boss Capital Partners is a, a group of angel investor investors. So there's a there's a bunch of us that are in the core, uh, and then other investors outside all over the world. And what we do is we don't just invest in the company; we actually give that company all of the Boss Consulting. And I have two uh, people: one on the growth side and one on the retention, product and tech and, and margin side. And those folks help me go into a company and we actually really, really deeply work with these companies and help get them to success. And that's what I'm doing right now. Wow, two minute answer. You gave me a lot to ponder on and probably double click on further as I go through it. Uh, you spoke about you growing up in tents while you were building up your house and you have a lot of foster family around you as well uh how did that upbringing uh and you said you wanted to give it back uh as you basically started figuring out and started having a career but if you kind of focus on how family helped or how did that experience shape where you are today you did touch a little bit upon it i think i would love to double click a little bit more on that because it's an interesting experience uh from where you kind of had a humble beginning from there. Yeah, I mean, my family, uh, you know, my mom was a nun and my dad was a priest uh, in the Catholic religion. They left the church because they wanted to take care of children, um, which is why they went into the church in the first place and they couldn't do that in the church. They left the church um, and started to foster children that needed help and then adopted my sister from Korea and so I grew up in this sort of, you know, I mean, there was a lot of children around, sometimes nine children around at the same time. And obviously, you know, they were very giving. So there wasn't a lot of money because they were giving the money to the children. And, you know, we wore, you know, tore up clothes and, and I mean, it was, you know, and <clears throat> there wasn't always food. Um, and then we were living in Oakland, but Oakland, California in the Bay Area is kind of a rough place. Uh, you know, those rap songs that come out, a lot of that stuff comes yeah. out of Oakland. So yes. <clears throat> we were getting beat up a lot. So my mom moved us to the, uh, the hills, the mountains. And when we moved to the mountains, um, it was, uh, well, it was a shock, but we couldn't afford a house. So instead, um, we bought a piece of property and my mom put us in tents. And so we lived in these tents on this piece of property. And my uncle, my brother and I built half our house and once half the house was built we were able to move into the house but it didn't have any windows and it just had like you know the wood that you would see in a new construction home and a wood stove and we all lived in there um for a while for years actually um until my parents could afford to uh build the other half of the house um and we cooked on the wood stove um, there was no heat, no electricity. We cooked on the wood stove and heated by the wood stove. Um, we had chickens and, uh, and we would eat the animals. So every, uh, you know, every year I would raise pigs and then sell some to the neighbors and then we'd have enough to eat. Um, we were hungry sometimes. So I remember distinctly waiting outside of the chicken coop for a chicken to lay an egg so I could eat breakfast. Um, at the wood stove would never cook the eggs very well. So they were always a little raw, uh, you know, like wet and not really cooked. Um, 
but it was it was a really neat time to grow up. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. I really loved it. Um, and it, you know, a lot of times now you walk around when you have money, you know, when you built and sold companies and you walk around and you see people and you talk to entrepreneurs and you think to yourself, there has got to be a way for these people to be more successful. And I had figured that out because I had built all these companies in over 25 years, put together boss, you know, and once I put together boss, I was able to sort of go to these other businesses and say, Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Set it up this way. And I was helping all these businesses and congressional candidates and all this stuff and just studying and studying and studying and trying to figure out how I could solve this problem. And that was my focus. And that's still what I do today, right? That's my way of giving back. I find that entrepreneurs that succeed not only help with wealth distribution, meaning the, the very large amount of wealth with a very, very small group of people at the top filters down to entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But when it does that, they are very more, char- they're ch- more charitable. They give out to people, they have stock options. And so you see this sort of thing happen. But on top of that, their ideas come to fruition. And a lot of those ideas actually make the planet and all that inhabit this, not just people, uh, a much better place. And so I thought this is a good mission. And so about four years ago, I started dedicating my life to that. Wow. So you almost had an entrepreneurial bent of mind during your childhood. You did say that you were breeding pigs and you would keep some and sell some. So that's an interesting perspective and would love to see how did that shape up in the 12 companies you built. Did you? I, mean, I sold Rubik's cubes and, and uh, pet rats, and I would catch rattlesnakes and sell them. And uh, wow. yeah, I mean, I did. I sold everything that I could get my hands on. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first job like? Uh, was it? Did you build a company, or yeah, apart from doing these, you know, selling stuff? I would yeah. say, but. What was the real, real first job? Was that the real first job? Would you consider that? Or was that in a corporate life? Or was it something No, else? they were, they were, they, you know, I was a kid. You know, I mean, I started yeah. my first company when I was like 19 or 20. I think I was almost 20. Okay. So um, I actually uh, started a bungee jumping company, um, which was a horrible idea and uh, lost my money. And then I went from a bungee jumping company uh, to a, a applied environmental bio, or actually to a bank, and then to a applied environmental bio, uh, biotechnology company, and then when the dot com came out, uh, I fell in love, and I was like code and you know the internet. I was like, this is like amazing. It's just limitless. Hmm. And so then, uh, ever since then, I've just been in that space. Okay, and then. <laughs> How did these ideas come up, bungee jumping to biotech and then the internet? And how did these ideas shape up or build upon it as you moved along? Well, so the the bungee jumping was uh, just, I was a kid, you know, and I was doing really well. I was in the banking industry uh, selling money, basically, uh, to other Mm -hmm. banks. And I went bungee jumping because I'm into that stuff. You've probably seen on my website, I've done, you know, wrestling crocodiles. I've done a lot of things. So I was into that and I was like, oh, I'm going to go bungee jumping. So I went bungee jumping and I found all these flaws in the way that they were running the business. And I also had felt that I could uh, sell advertising, use it as advertising. 
so I built this bungee jump company and we did like a Mountain Dew commercial and we did like a, a Chevrolet commercial. We were uh, bungee jumping like uh, movie stars and rock stars and, and just normal everyday people. And it was, uh, it was working out really well, except for the fact that people pay in cash and the people that work for me stole the cash. Uh, oh. And I learned that lesson pretty quickly. Um, and then after that, uh, I went into uh, the, the, the banking industry and uh, I had been in that industry before. And so I started a, what's called a non-depository bank. Basically you, you lend money on a credit line instead of on people's deposits and built that up in a couple of years and sold it to uh, a private company. But at the same time, I was talking to Dr. Howard Warren, who is the guy who invented applied environmental biotechnology. This is just using bacteria to eat up hydrocarbons. And he was an old guy and you know, 80 something years old and he became a friend of mine. And when he passed away, he gave me uh, all the, the technology and all the rights and everything. And so I built a company on that, left the bank, built a company on that and sold that to a public company out of Canada uh, and then I was snowboarding, uh, and I met a guy on the lift and, uh, this guy was really into technology. And so he, I didn't know who he was. He turned out to be a billionaire son. I had no idea. And he invites me to his office and he says, listen, I'm going to give you some money to finance a hosting company. Uh, hmm. but the hosting company was premature because nobody had websites. So we had to build a website company and then a hosting company. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. And then after that company sold, I was sitting there going to everybody that I had built a website for and we were hosting asked the question, how do I get traffic to my website? Now, now what? And so I built an advertising agency specifically in online advertising. This is in like 1999. Okay. So hmm. this is like at the very start of all that stuff before Google, when Yahoo is dominant, you know, <clears throat> and I built that company up and then that went through, uh, I, I started just building companies. I mean, I would build two, three at a time in the, okay. in the space and I would be selling them and I used the money that I made from uh, selling these companies to finance the main company that I had been building in the background. Uh, the one okay. that I ended up selling to eBay. Yep. And that was Pepper Jam or it was Pepper called Jam. as Pepper Jam after now it's called Pepper Jam. Yeah. So Pepper Jam was a network before, I mean, that transaction, there was 14 companies. We sold 12, two of mine were purchased. And then, then they were, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five that were merged into Pepper Jam, which is now what Pepper Jam is. Okay. It's a and you, complicated scenario. Sure. And I've heard about eBay's, how they have, acquired merged demerged companies over the period of years and then you went back to work for pepper jam uh, when i look yeah, at so the then LLC. they hired me as the uh, chief strategy officer to figure out the direction of the company like what we were going to do next and so i went in there and i uh changed the whole business uh the direction we were going in um the technology stack was completely changed um, the customers that we focused on, I mean, I worked really hard in that industry, put in boss in the company, uh, 
and then they turned me into the chief technology officer. So I was the chief technology officer. And then once the company was on stable ground and it was in good shape that what my part was done, uh, they hired a new CEO and I was able to leave and go back to um, doing what I really love, which is working okay. with entrepreneurs. Yeah. Impressive. I don't know if you know, but there's a common uh, thread between the two of us. You have this boss framework. And my email is the boss man at anismerchant.com. I know, so, I know, I saw that. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting uh, merge but, uh, between the two. Acronym, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mine is not. Uh, but uh, let's double click on this boss framework. Uh, you referred it twice or thrice on this uh, conversation. Uh, for my benefit also, I've read a little bit about it, but in your own words, will really help me understand what the boss framework is all about. Well, it's good to understand where it came from first, right? Yeah. The, the, the catalyst of it. So the first thing I was so, I found it to be unacceptable that, you know, 80, 90% of entrepreneurs were failing, right? In any other industry, that would be completely unacceptable. But for some reason in this space, in startups, people are like, they accept it, including investors. You know, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, we bet on 10, we win one. I mean, like how, so I was really frustrated with that, right? I was like, this is crazy. Like what, this is not right. People are just like rolling over and accepting this. So I started studying, you know, why? You know, mm -hmm. why, why are these entrepreneurs failing? And I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of interviews, right? With investors and entrepreneurs and asking the question, why are they failing? Why are they failing? Why did they fail? Why did they succeed? And then I realized that that's not the right question. The first question is when they fail, at what stage, and then why? So in that process, I said, okay, well, they're not all failing at the same point, right? That's not how it actually works. So I broke it up into stages. There's five levels. Each level has different challenges, and so each level has different reasons why people fail. And so what I learned is I said, okay, at this level, somebody fails, at this level, somebody fails, and this level. Then I said, okay, now why are they failing at these levels? And then I went out and I did interviews with the Navy SEALs. I interviewed the Marine Corps. I interviewed Navy captains and Air Force fighting wings, uh, software companies, manufacturing companies, uh, just everything I could find that had process anything that had a process that had something where the failure rate could not be, uh, uh, you know, any, any failure rate uh, that was, you know, below, you know, 20% would be just unacceptable, right? Mm -hmm. And then I figured out what they were doing, right? What do you do when this happens? This being those things that I found when I did the interviews in terms of why people are failing at different stages. And then I started enhancing boss with that. So the initial framework of boss is really, really good, but it, it could use more, you know, it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be like an open source thing in, in, in that you have an agile process, which has multiple iterations. So boss is meant to be that way. So I started doing iterations to it. Right. And I did mm -hmm. iterations from everything. I studied every possible operating system from six Sigma to 4DX, agile, lean, uh, you know, OGSM, 
uh, I mean, just everything, right? I mean, there's so many of them as huge list. I listened to all the audio books, interviewed people, talked to people, studied up on articles, you know, did everything I could, took some classes to learn them. And I found that these things are really good, but they're good at the right, they're very stage appropriate. You know, they mm. need to be stage appropriate. So I said, okay, if you apply these strategies to different stages, those stages being the stages that people fail, and then you layer on all these tools and sort of a methodology and a way to think through it, then you have a much greater success rate on, on the outcome of the business. Not only do you have a greater success rate, but you can do it much, much faster. So something that takes five, six years, you can do in three years. And if you do it faster, it means that you're burning less cash. And if you're burning less cash, it means that you have you can sell the business for less and make it so the entrepreneurs and the investors still have a lot to gain. And that is the perfect model, right? Because the longer you hold on to a business, the, the more you have a liability, right? I mean, it doesn't take a long time. It typically takes two to three years for somebody to catch up with you, right? So if you sell the business in three years, you get that liability. Also, the more money you raise, the more money you have to sell for, you know, to make sure that everybody gets their valuation. So now you get into this circle, this vicious circle, right, where you're raising capital, kicking out the exit, raising capital, kicking out the exit, this whole thing. So that whole thing at the end of the game, I had to put, I had to fix that. But what I found out is that starts at the very beginning. It starts at the very, very So when you're at the very beginning of the of the business, you have to do what I call the North Star. And a, a North Star is, you know, people say, oh, you have to have a North Star, right? A North Star is a direction that you look and that is what you're focused on. So you're directionally correct. But you can't just say that that's not enough. You can't just say that, right? So you have to break down the North Star, right? What is your business, right? That's the first step. What is your product? And that's just description feature and benefit. And then you have to say, why would somebody want to buy your product? And why would somebody want to buy your business? That's problem, solution, and impact. And then you have to say, who? Who is going to buy your product and who is going to buy your business? That's your ideal customer profile, which has its own breakdown, and your ideal buyer profile. This is the company that's going to buy your company. And then you have to ask when, very important, the time horizon. When will this company be sold, right? When is this company actually going to be? So that's the three-year time horizon. It's very, very important. I'll get to that in a minute. And then how much? Not how much are you going to sell your business for necessarily first. The question to ask is how much do you want to make? Because I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. They say, I want to sell for $100 million. Wait, hold on. Let's unpack that. Why do you want to sell for $100 million? Because, you know, I want to sell for $100 million. Well, how, how much do you want to make? Well, I want to make 10 million. Well, I've seen companies sell for 500 million where the entrepreneur makes two and a half. And I've seen companies sell for 20 million where the, where the entrepreneur makes 10. So why don't we focus on what you want to make and then go from there? That makeup essentially gives you the design of your business. Now, if you don't do that wow. right away, and people, people, I was getting these debates on stages on panels and stuff where somebody go, well, it's too early. You don't have to talk about who you're selling your business too early. You don't want to do that. You want to focus on just build your business. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's like saying, now think about it this way. Your whole business, entire thing is only a product 
to the person who's buying your business, to that other business. That business has already absorbed the customer acquisition cost. They've got thousands of customers and they've already absorbed that cost. And what they want to do is make money by selling other products to those customers they've already paid for. That's where they make their profits. So if you, if you have a product and you haven't designed it specifically for their customers, for them, it's not something you can decide at the last minute. You can't say, okay, now I'm going to sell to this company and then try to match it up. You've already acquired all these customers that are essentially a waste of time and a waste of money. So you have to start out by saying, who is the customer that they have? So you choose five, three to five buyers and you identify who their customers are. And then you build your customer for them. I sold a business three months ago that had $2.2 million in revenue for $48,750,000. That's because for three years, we had ensured that the customer that we had and the customer they had were the same customer. And because those customers were the exact same customer the whole time, when we went to market, we were able to say, listen, our ICP and your ICP are the same. And for that time frame, we actually were able to say, listen, uh, we know because we took a base of 500 customers, we were able to achieve 250 of those customers that 50% of your customers will buy our product. That makes us valuable to you. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, it makes sense. It's impressive. And have you seen companies whom you talk to do not adopt BOSS because they don't believe in it? Have you had those situations where you've invested? Yeah, uh, we now we force them. I mean, now we, we make okay. them go through the process. So when you look at your business, right, and you sit there and you say, okay, now I've identified who's going to buy my business and I have identified who their customers are and you realize that your whole business is just a product to the other business, then it changes everything, right? Think about fundraising. So I talk to entrepreneurs, I probably look at 150, 200 deals a month, right? And I talk to entrepreneurs and I look at it and they're, they're saying, okay, well, we have, let's say, um, we're going to raise $1.5 million. And I ask, where are you going to spend the money? And they're going, we're going to spend it on growth. And I go, okay, what kind of customer are you going to acquire? And they go, we're going to acquire this customer. And they usually will understand who their customer is nah, vaguely. They don't really have a true ideal customer profile. But then I say, who's going to buy your customer, your company, and what do their customers look like? And they have no idea. And I said, so how do you know hmm. that your business is going to be good for that other company when your customers and their customers are different? And your money that you're trying to raise, this, this $1.5 million to go get how many customers? 1,000 customers, right? The buyer of your company has 25,000 customers. Do you think they give a flying shit about how many customers you have? They don't. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, you're burning cash for growth that is unnecessary because it's not actually going to, going to accelerate the yeah, multiple. Exactly. Now, it may accelerate the base. So if you have you know, ARR of a certain amount of revenue, it's going to accelerate that, but it's not going to actually accelerate the multiple. And like I said earlier, it's all about the multiple. It's not about the revenue okay. number. It's about the multiple, right? Because think about it. If you have a thousand, if you have a hundred thousand in revenue and you get a multiple of two versus a multiple of ten, so what is easier to do? Go out and get big numbers, or just make sure you get a higher multiple? 
It's way easier and way less expensive and you burn way less cash and it takes less time to get a higher multiple because you've designed your company appropriately from the beginning than it does to grow big numbers. So this is the core of boss, right? It's just changing the thought from the very, very beginning, right? So at the very start, you say, what is my company? Who is buying my company and my, all this stuff is company and product, right? So you have what, who, when, how much, you know, all these things are lined up. Yeah. Now you have a North star. That's a North star. And now you align everything you do to that journey. And the second stage of boss is where you put together a strategy and then you go into standardization and then you go into execution and then you go into the Kaizen loop for continuous improvement and you loop through that process over. There's a lot of stuff on the website, gregoryshepherd.com on boss. And the, the book on boss comes out later this year from Forbes. Um, you know, I write for entrepreneur and all these different places and, you know, we're putting together a boss Academy right now uh, in alignment with mm-hmm. uh, the local universities and economic development chambers uh, to start teaching uh, students and young entrepreneurs about boss for free uh, to help out um, because it's been so effective. So wow. that's kind of the, the, I know it's like drinking out of a fire hose, but that's kind of the, the basis. Yeah. No, I would highly recommend because just hearing about the boss framework sounds pretty impressive. And if you've tested and tried it over so many companies, then it sure has success rate. But, you know, in often uh, investor community, people say invest in people and, you know, the idea will fall in place. It looks That's like. Ridiculous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you what. I got so, this, one, this one, I got to just, I have to interrupt you because this is like one of the things that drives me. Sure, crazy. sure. All right. So you, as an investor, right, you, you have the choice of investing into the horse or the jockey, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. the jockey's never ridden a horse. That's why they're talking to you about money because they don't have any. So they've never done it before. So any investor that has that advice, I always get into debates with them. I'm like, that's obviously you have never been an entrepreneur because it's like, it's like sending somebody out to battle who's never been in a battle before and betting on them to win. That's insanity, mm-hmm. right? So when you're, when, as an investor, you, you bet on the horse, not the jockey. And that's why at Boss Capital, we put so much energy into grooming the jockey because we know they need help. We know they're going to fail. And that's what, one, of the, one of the major reasons why entrepreneurs fail. I mean, they don't know. It's like running through a minefield blind. You know, They don't even know they're in a minefield, let, let, let alone know where they are or if they're even standing on one at that very moment. So it's, mm. you know, it's really important that you sit down and you say, okay, you, you have never done this before. Now, regardless of how you know, confident you are, for lack of better words, it could be arrogant, that a lot of entrepreneurs have when they start out. I mean, I was that way too. I've got this, you know, da-da-da-da-da. You don't got this. You have not done this before. And there are going to be things like COVID-19 that are going to come up, that are going to T-bone you on some Tuesday afternoon that you've never thought of. You know, your core person yep. is going to quit. Some competitor is going to come out of the woodwork. You know, the market is going to change. Somebody's going to come out with something that's going to disrupt something that's going to have a series of ripple effects that eventually reaches you. 
there's a lot of things that can happen. And as an entrepreneur without very much experience, you, you need somebody to help you through that minefield. It is really, really important. And so hmm. I always tell people, I'm like, you can't, you don't bet. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to go to the horse race and I'm going to bet on the jockey, even though the jockey has never ridden a horse ever before. Never ridden a horse, but I'm going to bet on that jockey. I mean, nobody would do that, right? I mean, that would be the most <laughs> yeah. idiotic thing you've ever done. You may say, I'm going to bet on the horse if there's a good jockey riding the horse. So you have to help out. And this is where I think, you know, investors fail is that, you know, they don't invest themselves in the business because it's not very scalable. I can't do that many deals. I do like one every three months because I can't possibly handle that many. And I need a team of people to help me. So for a big fund or whatever, it's not very scalable. You know, you can't like do that many deals because you have to put so much work into every one. But the success, the success rate is a lot, lot higher. Right? You, you have a much better, better turnout and you learn a lot and you can share things from one to another. You know, so you have one entrepreneur and you learn something and then you tell your portfolio companies about this. Boss is not a uh, boss is a framework, meaning it's guardrails. It gives you the guidance you need. What goes inside of it is are, are things that come out of that unique company's scenario. But the guardrails prevent you from coming off the tracks and going in directions that you don't, you know, that you shouldn't be going in, you know? So starting with the beginning, right? I mean, you know, this is that whole thing that I went through the North star is really fundamental. And I think it is, it is the first place that people fall down when I looked at the study is right after they get their first round of funding. It's very interesting. People go through accelerators and incubators and they can put together a deck like a dream and they even practice and pitch it and they, they're really good. And they show the investors yeah. that they know, but they don't know, right? They've just practiced this very specific scenario. So then what happens is that entrepreneur gets turned loose with this money. Six months later, they're going back to the uh, investors. Hey, I need, I need some more money. And the investor's like, well, what did you do? And they're like, well, nothing. I mean, we're still working on it. We got, you always hear this, right? Hmm. We're still working on it. This happened, that happened. This is late, whatever. There's always reasons. And those reasons weren't forecasted because that entrepreneur had never done this before. So then the investor says, I'll tell you what, if you reach these benchmark benchmarks, I'll give you some more funding, or I'm not going to give you any funding. And they obviously miss those because they don't know about that either. And then they go out of business. It's a huge percentage of them get pretty far down that funnel and they go out of business. It's almost like a disservice when an accelerator or an incubator trains them so well on how to get funding by putting together their deck and all this kind of stuff, but doesn't teach them what to do after they get funding. You know, now they've got this money and they've been able to do a deck really well, but they've got no North Star, they've got no strategy. They're just kind of, you know, trying to put together their product yeah. and, you know, things change in their iterations. And I mean, it's just, you can see that the drop off at that point is substantial, right? There's a, oddly enough, there's a smaller drop off of entrepreneurs that don't get funded and fail than the ones that get funded and fail. The ones that don't get yeah. funded and fail, a lot of times will go into a bootstrap mode because they believe in their product. So they automatically filter themselves out. And they get to the yep. point where they've made it pretty far. The ones that get funded right off the bat, 
a lot of times these guys fail. And that's like level one. That's the first fail. The first massive amount of people that just bomb right there. That's why investors take so much at such high, uh, uh, you know, low valuations because the risk is high. It's huge. So then you move to level two, the next stage, which is you've got your proof of concept. You've got your business. You've got market and buyer validation. And now you need to go into some sort of growth mode. But again, you've got no North Star. You've got you. So now you go into go to market strategy and things fall apart at the seams there. And that's, you know, level two. So you're not as, but you're still really, you know, reactive and not as pro. You think you're being proactive, but you're being proactive about those things that you see, not those things that you don't see, obviously. And so you can yeah. see this chain of events following all the way up to the final, right? Where you see, a lot of these companies get to the to the end of the road. They've raised a ton of money and they can't sell. And you look at the reasons why. A lot of times they've raised too much money. So basically they raised too much for the investors to get the return they want. So the investors say no to the acquisition because they're looking at losing money or not making any money after a long five-year ride, right? And then you know, a lot of times you see these scenarios where it's like, okay, well, then we'll do an IPO. And sometimes people think that the answer is an IPO, but that market has changed too. It used to be that you would go to an IPO because you need money and you need to go. Now you have to be profitable to go to an IPO, right? So it has to be a true growth play off of an already profitable company. So IPOs can't rescue those kind of companies, right? So now you start to see drop off at that level. And even those that have pulled it off like Airbnb and Uber and stuff go into the market and they still have a problem because their, their true company is disclosed. So, you know, things have changed and, you know, I built boss as, as a tool, you know, to help, to help people out a process to say, look, try this, do this, do this. Now all the information in is you, it's like baking, right? You have to have the fundamentals, but the ingredients are yours and you still have to sit over the dish and make sure that it's okay. So that's kind of like what I built. Switching gears a little bit. uh, You did touch upon you're getting your book published by Forbes. Uh, You're starting a boss academy or boss training program, which will be given to students and teach entrepreneurship for free. You've written a lot of articles. You're there in the speaking circuit. There is a lot going on with you. How do you keep up? (laughs) and i have my portfolio companies you know i do it with boss actually i I use boss literally myself i mean i used it last year i rode a bicycle uh from san francisco to la which is 525 miles the year before that i ran a marathon i've climbed the rock face of el capitan all of these things i use boss for so i don't just use it in business or my, my portfolio companies i use it for myself you know, so every morning I set my intentions, you know, so every morning I sit down and say, what, what, what are my intentions and what am I focusing on today? And the Bosch framework allows you to do these things. It's very unique that way. I, I didn't initially, you know, I built it specifically for myself, for building businesses, for my own businesses after studying it. Um, and then I use I started using it. I was like, well, you know, I could use it for myself. I even taught a class 
for a bunch of uh, a bunch of stay-at-home moms uh, in San Diego that were putting together dream boards uh, for their goals in the future. Mm. I taught a class to them. I taught it to a congressman and a congresswoman. Um, and, you know, I mean, I had a meeting with a captain in the Navy that controls a whole fleet of nuclear uh, uh, ships. Uh, he said he would have taught it to all his people. Um, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's a good, it's, it's, it's a, the re, it's so versatile, right? So that's how I get every, that's how I do everything is I just do it inside okay. of that framework. I mean, basically I think about it like this. You have a piece of content, you have a story you want to tell, right? You have something really important you think is going to help benefit entrepreneurs, but everybody digests information differently. So I have dyslexia and I have a visual processing disorder and stuff. So for me, listening is very important, right? Because I don't read very well. So, but some people listening isn't as good, right? So they want to read. So for the people that learn from listening, I do podcasts. And the people mm. that learn from listening and watching, I do videos. And for the people that want to learn from reading, I do articles. And then I do speaking events. So what I'm trying to do is take the information and put it in all these different ways. So depending on how somebody wants to consume that data, there is something available for them. That's a lot. Probably there's a lot to learn from personally for me as well. Uh, now, if I talk a little bit, uh, and you know, I, I hope you're fine with that. You spoke about some personal inhibitions or personal limitations which you have recognized. How you've overcome it over a period? Because all of us... Uh, who've been in the journey, who've been in professional life, uh, even I have certain personal uh, limitations, uh, like I have a problem with a defect in my leg uh, also, so which has, you know, probably inhibits me to get physical, get into physical activities a lot uh, because of the problem in the leg. But, uh, you know, how have you overcome your, so you spoke about listening as a way out to get over the shortcomings which you have so is that the framework which you've adopted or, or was, were there other mental process yeah i mean you know you i think obstacles are the things you see when you take your mind off the goal if you focus on the wrong thing then that's what you see right so you know when you're driving and you look to the right you go to the right you know um i have asthma right i have a really bad asthma and i ran a freaking marathon I mean, it took me seven and a half hours, right? So I was like the last, you know, at the very end of the thing. It was very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, I did it, right? I just kept a slow pace, really slow, obviously a really slow pace. I mean, I, I saw a guy wearing a princess dress run by me who was about 70 years old. But I finished the marathon, you know, nonetheless, right? I, I did it. Um, I think that you find out what your limitations are and then you figure out alternatives to that limitation right? you figure out ways to get around that limitation and then you work within the the confinements of that right and the the feeling that you get when you overcome an obstacle is you know is the best feeling i've ever felt right and so typically you know i i the people that know me they know about the handful five things right Five things that you, you have to have a handful of things, focus, drive, enthusiasm, discipline, and optimism. If you have those five things, you can make something happen, right? So think about focus. 
If you don't have focus, you're not going to be able to get anything, right? You're going to be, if, if you have one of these people that has shiny thing object syndrome or, you know, the attention span of a fruit fly, you're not going to get anything done. You have to have like really good focus. You have to have drive. You have to be driven to something, right? And in order to have drive, you have to have optimism, right? You have to have, you have to be optimistic. You have to have, you know, optimism is like the biology of hope, right? You have to have something to look forward to. You have to have discipline because discipline comes in when all else fails. When you don't have hope and you don't have optimism and you're just bummed out, then you have to dig deep and you have to pull that, that discipline out and like military level discipline and put your mind out of the picture and just move towards the objective with discipline. And enthusiasm, I think, is fundamental. And enthusiasm is contagious. You can build a team with enthusiasm. If you're not enthusiastic about something, you, you, you might as well, you're just going to wilt away, right? So focus, drive, enthusiasm, discipline, and optimism, a handful of things. That's, that's how I overcome my obstacles. Um, and that's how I move forward with everything, right? So even with the business, I had a point where, you know, I, I went through the, the dot bomb uh, with businesses in that space. Um, and I went through the 2008 recession and I went through the 911 crisis and now this situation, um, and the following market correction and, uh, you know, I've survived all of it and kept moving forward. And you do that through the handful, right? Focus, drive, enthusiasm, discipline, and optimism. So focus, well, what's the focus? The focus is to get from where I am to where I want to be, right? So you got to stay focused, right? And you have to be optimistic that you're going to be able to get there. So when I was training, you know, when I first started running for the marathon, I, I would run like a half a mile and I'd be sitting there just <gasps> my puffing machine, you know, <clears throat> I mean, it was just really difficult. And I said, you know, okay, that's good. And then it took me a year. And then the next, I do this every year. I choose one thing to overcome, to keep myself sharp, to keep myself to know in my mind that I can do things that I think are impossible, that I think are impossible. Impressive. Yeah. So the next, so the next time I ran, I was able to, you know, I said, I'm just going to try to run a mile. And then I got up to where I was running five, 10, 15, 18 miles, you know, and with the cycling last year, you know, I, I was able to, to ride like two and a half, three miles uh, without going up a hill. And, uh, you know, at the end, I could do 100 miles, including hills, you know, oh. and it was a, uh, it, 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 it makes you feel like you get this in self empowerment, you feel like, shit, I can do things, I can do things that are impossible, I can do anything. Hmm. Right? You, that is fundamental, I think, when you go into building a business too, you know, and sometimes yep. it helps to have people you know, think that way, like think to yourself, listen, you, you know, if you look too far out into the distance, uh, you can get lost. So first of all, you have to have a North star because if you were to cross the ocean and you were to be two degrees off, you would be in a different continent by the time you get there. So you have to have a North star. So you have a straight line, right? And then you have to have points along that, along that distance, like you would, if you were, you know, a GPS, right? A GPS is going to say, yep. turn here, turn here, do this, do that, right? And that is your, your strategy or your plan. And then you have to get smart, right? So you have to learn from what you've done. And that's standardization, 
learning, documenting and learning what you've done along the way. I mean, that's what textbooks are, right? And yeah. then you have to go, go into self-improvement, right? Which is what I did where I was like, okay, I'm going to do a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And maybe I, you know, for me, I had to keep my pace because what was causing my asthma was my heart rate. So if I kept my pace underneath my heart rate, then I could do it. So I would keep track of my heart rate and I would, and I would keep my heart rate under a certain amount all the time. And then I could prevent asthma yeah. from happening, except for on a hill. <laughs> but, you know, that's, I think that that's, you know, that's my journey, right? Um, the computer reads to me, my wife reads to me sometimes, you know. It's been an impressive journey for you, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of ogling over everything what you've just said, and there's a lot to learn from what you've just said today. Uh, when you look back, and from when you started to where you are, if I give you a time machine and say, hey, Craig, go back and do this in 10 or 15 years, uh, then the time you've taken today uh, to do it, would you be able to do it or would you let it be the way it has gone by and say, no, I don't want to go back and rewind it and probably do it quicker. What's your perspective on this? If I were able to take what I know now, I would definitely go back. Um, because okay. I think that if, if I had the experience I have now, both as, as an entrepreneur and an investor, knowing both sides of that, because they're very, very different. Um, that I'd be able to do it a lot quicker. And I'd be able to get to the point where I, where I was able to start helping entrepreneurs, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than I was able to do that. I mean, right now, you know, you know, I, I don't know how many, I, I, would, I would like to save hundreds of businesses a month, you know, by teaching them what I know and having them use the process, you know, just hundreds, right? Um, yeah. If I were to go back and add 15 years to that, man, that would be thousands and thousands of businesses, some really good ideas. I see really good ideas go out of all the time. I see really bad ideas work. And, yeah. you know, so I, I really want to make sure that those entrepreneurs that have solutions to real problems that can help this planet and everything that inhabit it, inhabits it uh, are successful. So I think I would go back just so that I could do more of that earlier you know, instead of um, taking so much time to learn it in order to be able to have something to give. I mean, for a long time, I just felt, you know, sort of insecure. Like, how could I have the, these answers? Like, who am I to, to be the guy that does this? You know, it took a lot of yep. convincing from people telling me, you know, people that have used Voss and stuff saying, man, you have to teach this to people. You know, I mean, speaking events or uh, entrepreneurs, investors, people coming to me constantly saying, you need to teach this, you need to teach this, before I finally felt, I guess, secure enough. And even then it took me, I did interviews and, and stuff for, for another four years, uh, trying to verify it, you know, like, well, what do you think? Would you use this? I mean, does it, what are the problems? You know, it took me a really long time before I felt like I had something to offer, uh, you know, so I think okay. if I had to go back, I would do it and I would just do it a whole lot faster and maybe save a lot of, a lot more businesses that need to be there, help with some wealth distribution, uh, bring up standard living for people, maybe help with the environment and, and human rights and equality. And there's, there's so many 
beautiful things that you could do if you had uh, given some given back some time where you had learned things. So, what's your favorite moment uh, in the journey which you've had? Are there one single out moment which you say, you know, you still cherish? How about if I answer it this way? How about if I tell you about a reoccurring moment that's happened several times that every time it happens, I cherish the same? I think this would give you... Sure. When I help an entrepreneur and they sell their business and, and, and they give to charities and their employees who have stock options make money and then I get this you know, text or email or something from them that says how grateful they are. And, and they talk about what they did, you know, so sometimes, you know, I paid off all my student loans. I put some money in the bank. I bought a house. I have money set aside for my kids, you know, like all these sort of things, or, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, I gave money to this charity. I bought this rainforest and turned it into a park or, you know, when you help somebody else achieve, financial security and the outcome of that, right? Where they have more to give uh, and the feeling that they get from doing that, that they're sharing with me is a moment I cherish. It's, you know, when I talked about the handful focus, drive, enthusiasm, optimism, and discipline, it's my optimism. It's my hope. When that happens, the feeling is so recharging. It's like getting a vault of energy. You're like, Oh my God, this is so amazing, you know, to see somebody, you know, it's just really, there's no feeling that is like that feeling. It's pretty incredible. Uh, have there been any mentors in your life, which you would owe your career to or oh your God, so many. journey to? Yeah. I mean, I have, um, I had a mentor named Jim Eubanks when I was really young. I had another one named Jay Stoplestead and one named Bill Long, um, Billy Spazante, um, Stephen Davis. Uh, you know, I've had few, few uh, mentors along the way um, that have been influential to my progress that I've known personally. And then I have, uh, I have these paintings on my wall. One is of Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, you know, Bill Gates. And mm-hmm. So I call them my board of directors. They all have a different management style and different uh, personality, but they all stand for a little bit, a, a different way of thinking. Some of them, it's just so just the focus and the analytical process is just intense. Some of them, it's just, you know, this idea of having a vision and uh, unwavering discipline towards that, that vision under any crazy circumstances and some of them it just has to do with a a, the ability to really manage people and choose the right people and so you know there's a lot of different personalities I choose to uh, look at you know on my my wall when I'm in a situation I'll look at it and go I wonder how Steve Jobs would handle this knowing Steve Jobs how Hmm. I wonder how Elon Musk would handle this you know I wonder how Richard Branson would deal with Right. Wow. And that, mm-hmm. and so I've studied these people. So I understand as much as I can without knowing them about them. 
And it allows me to sort of ask the question, I think, I, I think you would do this. And then I think another person, I think they would do this. You know, I think this person would do that, you know? And then you have people like Winston Churchill, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela and Gandhi, and there's a, a bunch of other people that you think about more on the, uh, the morality, ethical, integrity side of things, right? And so you can have this sort of really more aggressive business, hardcore business perspective. And then you can have this other side, which is like, what is the right thing to do with, you know, with integrity? And I balance those things yeah. out. And then it helps me sort of make the, the things that I would, the decisions that I would, that, that I would make. And I do a lot of meditation. I, mean, I really uh, deeply believe in meditation. Um, you know, it, I think when people or religious people pray, they're just meditating, you know, and, yep. you know, so, you know, meditation allows you to sort of clear out the noise and then some things come into sharp focus. And that gives you the opportunity to really say, okay, that's it. I've had some epiphanies that, uh, that came out of meditation that were pivoted everything that I've done. Wow. I know we are on top of our time today. Uh, is there like a single thought which you would love to share it with the audience, which you might have not spoken about today? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a few. I think that mm -hmm. the, there, there's a few things. One thing is, is that, you know, I think people get, they beat themselves up over failure. Um, they learn this in school, they take a test, they don't do too well and they get beat up over that. Um, every failure is, and, and this is, uh, people say this stuff all the time, but I'm telling you, it is really true. They're just stepping stones. You have to fail to learn. I mean, you don't do a mm -hmm. retrospective about something when you win. Not often do people go, oh, man, I won. What did I do? What happened? How do I make this happen again? But you definitely do that when you fail, right? You hit your head on something and you go, noted, not going to walk over to that cabinet door like that anymore, right? So if you think that the there's a, there's a ladder that you have to climb to get to success and you have to fall several times. Sometimes the rungs will mm -hmm. break unexpectedly. Sometimes it will get disbalanced. Sometimes you lose your balance. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but that is necessary. It, it just has, there is no way for you to learn. Even in the boss framework, it, it helps you get directionally correct, but you're still going to make mistakes and that's okay. The mistakes are valuable parts of the process to get you to the point where you accomplish your successes. It's really, really important to not, look at those things as a negative, but to look at them as steps necessary to accomplish success. You sit back and you say, you know, this happened, why did it happen? How do I prevent it from happening again? What's the best path moving forward? Mark that and then move on. Don't beat yourself up. In, in, in fact, I tell people, celebrate your small successes and celebrate your failures because yeah. everything you do is a lesson. It's, this is how, you know, people talk about AI all the time. This is how AI learns, right? It, this is yep. literally how it learns, right? It, it takes yes and no responses and it learns through this process. That's how we learn. So the only difference is, is that AI doesn't beat itself up 
when it gets something wrong, it just says noted, thank you, now I can move forward. That's the, yeah. the piece of information because I suffered from a lot of, I would say, depression and stuff through, you know, you'd lose something, have some hardship and you'd just be beating yourself up and just like, oh my God, you know, and then, but if you, if you look at that and you go, okay, you know, now I say, man, I'm glad I got that over with. All right, let me do a retrospective. How did that work? What did I learn? Okay, I've got something out of it. Now I move forward. There's a lesson. There's, there's, my mom used to say, make lemons out of lemonade. And there are lemons everywhere. Yeah. And it's the rare that can make lemonade. And failure gives you an opportunity. I always look at failure as an opportunity. So on that note, Greg, I think uh, this has been an amazing conversation with you. And really thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule and uh, speaking to me today. Oh, you're welcome. And it's an honor. And I really hope that, and those of you that are out there, it's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-S-H-E-P-A-R-D.com. Go there. There's a ton of free stuff. I mean, it, 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 all the boss, everything's there. I'm constantly doing new stuff. There's constantly new iterations we're doing right now on uh, crisis management using boss in uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, it's, it's really exciting. I hope I'm actually doing special edition podcasts for a lot of people on COVID-19 management. Uh, maybe I could do one for you as well. Sure. I'll definitely look up for that and probably we can do one together. And I'll definitely share the link of your website on my podcast when I publish it. Thank you. So for people to read it. Thank you. All right, Greg. Thanks for taking time out. Speak to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening in. And we close yet another episode of Master's Decoded. If you've enjoyed the episode, please, you can help us out by sharing it on social media. I would personally appreciate that. It's how we can reach more listeners, and the more listeners we have, the more awesome guests I can get in touch and convince to participate in these conversations. That are a joy to have for me, and I hope they are a joy for you to listen as well. You can also help a lot, leaving reviews on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. Reviews are surprisingly helpful in supporting the podcast to get to more listeners. If this episode has intrigued you, I would request you to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date and get notified to the future episodes. With that, I bid you and see you in the next episode.